Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So I ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. All of the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came back to seek and save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. He sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your minas are in ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minas earned five more. The master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposits that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? He said this to those standing by, take his mine away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, he replied, they already ha- he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Happy Easter. (laughs) So for Lent and kind of to prepare ourselves for Easter, uh, we picked the Gospel of Luke, which I think I've preached through like three times at Resurrection, but uh, I think it's an awesome gospel to do Palm Sunday and Easter in. And, um, you know, I was kind of looking back at it and uh, this piece that has the kind of element from Palm Sunday, the second half of 19, I think I'm going to do that. And then before I do that, I'm probably going to do, wait for it, the psalm that they cite. What is it, 18 or 119 or something next week? So probably better people are out of town. But today I want to kind of do the lead-in or the setup to the movement from Jericho to Jerusalem. And I kind of thought about this and debated about it for a while because, I don't know, we always learn about Zacchaeus. I learned about Zacchaeus in Vacation Bible School and that's like where I'm sure most of us did, and maybe you preach it every once in a while, and that's kind of the end of it. And as I read through this, the kind of narrative structure of 19, I actually think it's really important to take Zacchaeus and to connect him with the events that follow uh, both the uh, royal entry into Jerusalem and eventually um, to the uh, uh, Palm Sunday and, and Easter and all those events. And that, I don't know, Zacchaeus actually plays a really interesting role in helping solve what I think is the most interesting problem of this portion of 19, the whole Jesus calling for everyone to be slaughtered. So um, I don't know if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Like, we love the gospel of Luke around here because what's it about? It's this like one beautifully consistent theme. And the theme is 
take God's people as embodied in Israel and do what with it? Universalize it, extend it out to the world and take the old model of a king or a, a ruler and universalize it too. So we come to understand a vision of a God who rules the entire universe, who has uh, been incarnate in flesh and in doing so extends the possibility of membership in the kingdom to everyone. And it, you know, it's the thing that connects Luke and Acts together. And Zacchaeus in this little uh, kind of story of Zacchaeus plays uh, an important role in it. And I, you know, doing all the reading that I normally do, there's no uh, real scholarly debate about it that I can find. The consensus of experts is that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. So, uh, <laughs> Jesus met him in Jericho on the road to Jerusalem. And you all know the shtick about tax collectors, right? They were rich because they were unfair and worse than that. Uh, one of the things we emphasize at Resurrection a lot, they were like kind of toadies for the Roman Empire, right? They were folks who not only would uh, take taxes that you didn't owe, but they were kind of Roman collaborators. They were establishing the uh, local government and the uh, Roman government that uh, was not exactly one that was welcome there. And one of the interesting insights that this chapter presents, if you think about that kind of political angle of being a tax collector, uh, is that the way that the the piece here that describes Zacchaeus is not just that it's not just saying that he's short the the, the term for Zacchaeus being short here uh, in its superlative form is the same term that says uh, the least among you is the greatest in the let the little children come unto me episode that happens just a couple of chapters back it's that it's that word makros and why is why why pick of all the different things to describe about uh, Zacchaeus that he is Mikros, and you know, it's that he's teeny, that he's like not just small or not just like I don't know, like Annabeth or something, but he's like small enough that he has to <laughs> climb directly up the, the fig tree to say, say Jesus. And, and I think there's a connection that the text wants us to make here that is not just about paying attention to his stature, it does connect back with a bunch of things that Jesus said about the character of children, which, as you recall, there's like lots of little snippets of Jesus talking about children leading up to this, uh, this interaction with Zacchaeus, where he also talks about the children being micro. So, you know, Zacchaeus is kind of being framed alongside the uh, way that Jesus talks about and thinks about children. But does anybody remember what comes, and if not, you've got your Bible there, what comes immediately before Zacchaeus? The parable of the rich young ruler. And if you think about the parable of the rich young ruler, uh, you know, we all kind of know the punchline of it, but the, the, the big punchline of it is it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Zacchaeus is like short, but he's also described like the least, like kids. And he was rich and he was despised. And you should add here, he was from Jericho. And anybody remember what it means to be from Jericho? Cursed, cursed by Joshua. Yeah, absolutely. The same city that not only Joshua had cursed, but the same city that you know, Rahab barely made it out of and everyone else was destroyed because of their sin. And what, so what, who is Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is not just a wee little man. He is uh, from a town that is a place for rich, short, sinful stoolies for the Roman Empire. And uh, Zacchaeus is the kind of guy that suggests by near, uh, by his nature almost, that everything that the text is pointing towards us about him is that it would, he's the kind of guy you'd imagine would be impossible to redeem. But a little bit like a child, right? Like that, like Mikros, like small, like all engages in childlike behavior. And I don't know, that's the cool thing we don't learn about the story of Zacchaeus in VBS. Zacchaeus is kind of a summary 
of the preceding parables. Right? He's stained with sin. He's short. He's also kind of the least. He acts like a child. He climbs trees and he runs. But he also has this kind of childlike devotion that he puts in shuffling his teeny tiny little feet to see Jesus. You know? And do you know what his name means? Anybody know what his name means? I think this is beautiful. I didn't realize this before. His name means God makes you pure. God makes you pure. And so like Zacchaeus is, I don't know what he's done with the rich young ruler was just unable to do. He like gives up his wealth for the sake of the kingdom. He has come to Jesus with the kind of enthusiasm of a little child where the rich young ruler fails because he's so fixated on his own righteousness. Zacchaeus is willing to give it up to even do the embarrassing thing of climbing a tree. And because he has that childlike faith, he's able to be fully redeemed. It's a beautiful way of tying together three or four preceding parables about the character of Israel. What is Zacchaeus? He is the ideal subject of God's kingdom, who has come as a child, unlike the rich young ruler and unlike others, to run and to see and to embrace Jesus. Verses 5 and 6 for today. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down and welcomed him gladly. Imagine what a beautiful mirror image of the rich young ruler. Like the rich young ruler seeks purity by following the law. He can't give up on his wealth because the law and the wealth and wealth are ultimately about preserving his own good. He's clothed in this kind of false righteousness, but Zacchaeus he doesn't care about his own righteousness. In fact, he comes and he gives all he has to Jesus and pursues him like a child. He is made pure by God. He lives up to the intention of his name and he welcomes the Messiah into his home. See, how are we supposed to think about Zacchaeus, especially if we're in the kind of context of the audience that this text was intended for? A lot of times, don't you read the accounts of the audience in, in, in gospel accounts, and you're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're so terrible, right? Like, what does the audience say here? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. How dare they think that? Don't they know Jesus? But I think when you see the audience's reaction, it should be a cue to what the reaction of the audience that read this text was like. They're like, holy cow, what is Jesus doing hanging out with this Roman stoolie tax collector, collector, collaborator type guy? The crowd isn't, we shouldn't separate ourselves from the crowd. We should see the instinct that the ha- crowd has built into it and imagine the places where we extend that same kind of instinct. And I don't know, Zacchaeus not only ties up all the preceding parallels, he not only kind of notes the idea that every person can be redeemed, but Zacchaeus then is a model for, instead of the rest of the crowd that's going to say nasty things to Jesus on the way into Jerusalem, what it means for us to be a true son or daughter or subject of God. And in fact, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says pretty specifically in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is what? A son of Abraham. He's been adopted into, he's been grafted into, uh, he's been uh, fully restored in terms of his status in relationship to the new and the ideal Israel. He's become by grace an inheritor of the universal kingdom of Abraham. He's like the ideal subject of a good and a true king. So I don't know, here's where the connection gets interesting. Jesus came... To seek and be the king of the lost. He's on this kind of like triumphal march into Jerusalem. It's going to get kind of dark and weird, uh, at least for a while during Palm Sunday, when we think about the things that are going to come after it. And he's got this the Zacchaeus, who's this kind of like ideal child of the new covenant, the guy who represents the vision of the new Israel that might follow the person of, of Jesus. And the crowd's kind of debating about this. And the text makes a really big point out of saying, as Jesus and Zacchaeus, I imagine, are kind of listening to what the crowd's saying about Jesus inviting in this sinner who represents the new Israel. Jesus turns directly to the crowd and he's like, all right, I got a story to tell you. <laughs> you know, and 
I love what, I love that he does that. He's always got a story that kind of sees what's going on in the crowd and uh, kind of gets to the psychological motives of the crowd. And, you know, I talked about parables a ton not too long ago, so hopefully you remember some of the kind of technique stuff about that. But this parable is a little bit different than the versions that we've looked at before. It reminds you of what other parable? The talents, right? The parable of the ten talents. What's different about this parable than the regular parable of the ten talents? There's this little story bracketing it about a king that goes to a foreign land to get coronated, and then the, they send the subjects up to say, hey, we don't want this guy to be our king. And then there's this little ending about it where Jesus says, or, well, it's unclear whether it's Jesus saying or the person in the story saying, uh, time to massacre all the enemies. This story of the parable, the parable is directly connected to the interaction with Zacchaeus, and so, I don't know, well, let's try and figure out exactly why Scripture puts those things together and what exactly it's trying to tell. So let's start with maybe... Um, Verse, uh, I don't know, 11. Let's start with 11. So uh, Jesus tells a story about the king, and I've preached about the talents and the minus before, and if you don't remember my shtick on it, I'll just do it real quickly. My shtick on it is that the disposition of the bad servant is that he thinks that the master is a hard man. And the reason why he doesn't invest is because he's worried that he's going to get in trouble. And the point is not the normal kind of works righteousness point that we say, hey, go out and work and God will multiply your efforts. I think the point of it is that the one who sees the generosity and character of God is the one who is willing to invest and that God then in, in, in the parable kind of gives them a disproportionate return. And so this to me is a parable about grace and abundance, unlike the way we normally frame it. It's a parable about not just what you do with the talents, but it's a, a parable about God kind of giving in excess of what we deserve. And so I kind of read it a little bit differently than other people do, but this time the parable is not about the talents. This time the thing that we'll focus on is the king that likes to travel. Because at first I thought it was a really confusing addition, and why is it the transitional piece between the king and, uh, and Zacchaeus? So verses 12 through 15. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him the next day to say, we don't want this man to be a, our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Now, there's a lot of different ways of reading this addition to the parable, but like two or three are particularly beautiful to me. And one of the ones that's super beautiful to me is an audience that only the uh, a reference that only the audience of uh, kind of folks in ancient uh, greater Jericho, Judea, Jerusalem area would get. But just outside of Jer- Jericho, uh, where, you know, maybe even the place where all this took place, just, just, just like literally half a mile away from it, is an uh, a awfully important historical building. Anybody know? Get ready to get your Herods on. Herod the, Great winter, Herod the Great's Winter Palace was like almost right there. And it was destroyed at the end of Herod the Great. Uh, his reign, but when Herod the Great dies, his kingdom is split between his sons, Herod Antipas, who we know about from Matthew and Mark for executing uh, John the Baptist, and from Luke and his role in the plot against Jesus, and then his brother Herod Archelaus. So Herod Archelaus really wanted to make the old man proud, so they, you know, they split up the kingdom, and uh, Archelaus took like Jerusalem and lots of Judea, and uh, Herod Antipas took I don't know, like Galilee and some other places. And so Archelaus is like now in control of the uh, area around Jerusalem. And because he wants to make the old man proud, he kind of builds the uh, winter palace 
back up and he gets really excited about building up the winter palace and he's like you know what i got this palace thing uh down and you know the people think i'm awesome because i built this palace outside of jericho back up here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go up to rome and i'm gonna get crowned king of all of my father's for former territory so uh herod uh, archelaus goes to rome and uh he has a delegation of folks from jericho and judea follow and uh, they go up to Rome and they kind of make their case to the emperor. And they're like, look, you can't let this guy be our king. He's terrible and he's brutal. And, uh, you know, he may have rebuilt the palace, but this is not exactly the guy you want overseeing uh, the stuff that's going on in, in your territory. And the Romans, uh, believe it or not, didn't really listen to the people. <laughs> so uh, just like in the story that Jesus is telling, they crown King Archelaus the king. And there's one other little detail here that's really super important and it will become important later. The other detail here is that in order to pacify Archelaus, who wanted to be the king of all of, of Israel, basically, they said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make your brother, you ready for it, a tetrarch. That means he controls a significant portion of Roman territory, and he's like the governor who controls that territory. We're not going to make you a tetrarch. We're going to make you an ethnarch. You know what an ethnarch is? It's the person who is a king of a people. So we're going to make you the ethnarch of the Jews. Your brother will take this territory. That'll make him happy. It's great territory. And we're going to make you the ethnarch for the uh, Jews. And so they send Herod uh, Archelaus back to the kind of broader Jerusalem uh, area. And and what does he do? Immediately. Slaughters all his enemies. Like anybody who is against him, he, you know, had waxed. And so the weird thing is, is why is Jesus telling the story of the talents and which we imagine Jesus may have told any number of times by adding on essentially a person that perfectly mirrors Herod Archelaus. Like it's in Jericho. So it's right by the castle that he's famous for rebuilding. It is the exact same fact pattern goes to Rome and has people follow him, comes back and slays everybody. Why in the world is Jesus essentially referring to, I don't know, first century Saddam Hussein or something as a, as a way of kind of talking about, how he uh, does the, the, the story of the talents. Why invoke this guy who would have been, you know, he was eventually kicked out for being too brutal by the Romans. And if you're too brutal uh, on the Roman account, there's, there's a real problem here. So Jesus is kind of telling this parable. He sets it up with something, what's it called, Annabeth, when it like mirrors reality, close enough to give it a flavor of it? Fair similitude, is it not? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Yahoo, Isa! Yeah. So there's verisimilitude here. There's this thing that's told as a parable that actually has almost in exact detail the things that happened to this king, Archelaus. And, you know, you, you can insert the story of the talents here after they, uh, Jesus does this kind of setup for Archelaus. And, you know, it's all the kind of reward and stuff that we've talked about before with, you know, the, and, and the servants who invested well, not only are servants anymore, they become kings and co-rulers of the kingdom. Then as Jesus finishes out that story, good old King Archelaus returns. So the servants complain about taking the one mina from the bad servant. And then Jesus, you know, returns to this, like, it's only in Luke that this appears. And he says in verse 26, I tell you, everyone who has more will be given as for the one who has nothing Even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's a tough thing to read as as an interpreter of the words of of Jesus. Why is Jesus referring to, and even approvingly, 
the, the kind of murderous intention of Herod Archelaus, who slaughtered all his enemies in the courtyard of the palace. So uh, why is it that he draws on this guy, and what exactly is Jesus trying to say about the character of the kingdom? And I specifically want us to think about that as we're moving into essentially the royal progression that brings him, uh, kind of brings his journey to uh, Jerusalem to, uh, to, to, a con- to a conclusion at the cross and the resurrection. Now, there's some folks that say, look, Jesus is trying to frame the kingdom of God as being about judgment. <coughs> I guess, you know, like, okay, it, it doesn't seem to fix the problem of the massacre for me. And other folks are like, this is a divine redo of the, uh, the violent past of Israel. Maybe, you know, why, why cap everything off by recapitulating it? There's a bunch of folks that kind of read it as being about Christology, which I think is partially right in both directions, like Christ our King, who is of the most noble birth, ventures to a foreign land to become Jesus, the King and Messiah, and maybe it works the other way, Jesus, though born in a noble setting, is of noble birth as the Son of God, ascends to heaven, is declared King, and comes back to face resistance from the religious orders of Israel. Like, I guess you could read the Archelaus story Christologically, but like the main thing is that too does not describe the gore fest that Archelaus calls for and that Jesus implicitly calls for here. Archelaus slayed his enemies. Why does Jesus have to call for the same in the most like bro possible display of sovereign power? Well, I think there are three things here. The first is that's why it's crucial to read it with, uh, with Zacchaeus. The point of the Zacchaeus story is that no person is intrinsically an enemy of God. I don't just mean that theologically. I mean, one of the stories that Luke tells over and over and over and over, Luke is constantly telling these stories that says, we take people who we would not expect to see, the kindness, the character, the beauty of the kingdom, and who are converted almost immediately by seeing Jesus face to face. And in doing so, folks who we don't anticipate would be uh, easy converts are instead made people who are grafted into the kingdom because Jesus is seeking the lost and Jesus is seeking the lonely. And in fact, the point of the arc of the gospel of, Israel, a gospel of, 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 of Luke Acts is that Jesus is seeking what? The Gentiles. The folks who were framed by the old covenant to be either enemies of or indifferent towards the, the nation of Israel. And the point of the gospel of Luke Acts is to say, all the different barriers that we put up for who the kingdom could reach out to are progressively being torn down, are progressively being integrated into a vision of the kingdom. And maybe one of the things that's important that Zacchaeus is the kind of punchline for is that those who were lost, those who were the least, those who were the longest distance from reconciliation are sought out and invited in. And Zacchaeus is basically one of the last and most beautiful pieces in the Gospel of Luke and its arc and acts of the idea of, of, of the Christian faith and the actions of Jesus are basically like a wrecking ball for the friend-enemy line that is set up between those who are internal and external to the community. And Jesus is basically wrecking that wall between friend and enemy with the same kind of vigor and intention that Archelaus wrecked his opposition. I mean, Jesus is a certain uncompromising kind of leader, although the means of executing it are different. But there is no wall or no barrier or no definition of someone as an intrinsic enemy that Jesus accepts. Jesus, in fact, is, uh, is all about the, the, the project of the church as being ever more inclusive and ever more universal so that every person can come to know and can come to love God. The other thing is Archelaus, even though he is violent, and this is maybe even like an unchristlike reference to Archelaus' slaughter claim, is that who was Archelaus? Archelaus was the last ethnarch of the Jewish people, and that's not insignificant. 
He was the last one who was declared by any sovereign power as the king of the Jews and having a unique claim over uh, Jerusalem. It is proof of his kingship over a new Israel. And when Jesus makes a connection between actions of his and actions that Archelaus would have been known for, Jesus is also subtly saying that the kingly line that constituted Israel is back in him. And it explains the ways why, if you understood the reference between him and Archelaus, that what's about to happen on Palm Sunday is in fact about the vision of of, of Israel's royalty. And three is the funny thing to me is that uh, like love in Greek, there are lots of different words for enemies. There's some enemy words that are positional, like a, I don't know, a foe you face in combat. There are other enemy words that are unchangeable. And the word here for enemies, uh, bring my enemies to me so that they can be slain in front of my face, is a word uh, ekthros. And it comes from the term for hatred. An ekthros is not an enemy who's defined by what they do, like say a foe on the field of battle, and ekthros is defined by an irredeemable, irreconcilable, mute, almost like mutually exclusive existence. And so to, call, to say, bring my ekthros to me, bring my enemies to me and slay them in front of me, identifies a very narrow category of thing. It would have to be a person and a, and a thing whose existence is not only unchanging and intrinsically opposed to the character of Jesus, but it would have to be a person or a concept whose existence was mutually exclusive with the existence of Jesus and for whom there was no possible terms of reconciliation. So why Archelaus? Well, sure, it defines Jesus as the ethnarch, as the rightful rule of Israel. It's a preview of Good Friday and all that. But I think you really have to ask, who is the real enemy of Jesus that Jesus is calling to face? And there is only one core entity whose existence I understand to be mutually exclusive with the identity of Jesus. The New Testament uses the word enemy a lot, like 40 times. It only names one enemy. It only names one thing or calls one thing an enemy, using the word uh, ethnos. What is it? Death. Death is the only thing that is specifically named as an ekthros in the New Testament. You cannot read this account of Jesus calling for a face-to-face encounter with his enemies so that he can slay them without contextualizing it in the broader sense that in the New Testament, the ultimate and the final enemy, in fact, is death. And there it is. That's why Archelaus is in there. He represents not only the last gap of the ethnic religious order, not only the last king of Israel who cannot be redeemed, but each of the kings of Israel in the past had failed. They couldn't beat Babylon. They couldn't beat Rome. They couldn't beat Assyria. They couldn't beat all kinds of people, but Jesus, the new ethnarch of a universal Israel, will win, and he will do it by confronting the real enemy of a truly universal Israel, the enemy that is death. And he will claim that kingship and walk that road, and in the cross and in his resurrection, defeat it finally and forever. Amen. Questions or talk? Is it a satisfying resolution?